Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 22, 2 Kings, chapter 15, continued. Well, as we continue in 2 Kings 15, let's briefly review. First recall, that while 2 Kings has relatively few details regarding some of the Hebrew kings, the book of Chronicles adds a bunch more. Thus, in order to properly apprehend this deteriorating spiritual condition of Judah and Israel and of their kings, we have to incorporate the book of Chronicles. So we find in 2 Chronicles 26 that King Uzziah of Judah began as a relatively good and righteous king. And so the Lord supernaturally intervened on his behalf and gave him great military victories as well as great political successes. He reclaimed some land that the previous kings of Judah had lost, Edom being the most significant conquest. And he built up um, Jerusalem's defenses with the most modern, the most advanced innovations in armaments and in fortress designs. King Uzziah also created a significant standing professional army for Israel. And he used them to train civilian reserve forces of over 300,000 fighting men. And we're told that he had a God-fearing advisor named Zechariah. Zechariah whom the king used regularly to consult God on matters of state. But upon the death of Zechariah, Uzziah seemed to lose his balance. He had no one to hold him to accountability. He had no one to help him check his pride. The king began to think of himself as holy and pious, almost infallible. So one day, he got this bright idea that he wanted to burn incense on the altar of incense in the holy place, that front compartment of of the temple. This seemed like quite a righteous thing to him and a way that a man of his stature could come near to God. Needless to say, it was more than wrong-minded. It was a high-handed sin. And so it was instantly punished. And as he entered the temple smoking fire pan in his hand and he approached the golden altar of incense the high priest and some of his lesser priests rushed in to confront King Uzziah telling him in no uncertain terms he had no authorization to enter the temple he was forbidden to perform such a ritual and this was according to Torah commandments the king responded with indignation and anger and immediately Sarat appeared on his forehead. The presence of this abominable uncleanness first alarmed and then it emboldened the high priest and his cohorts such that they physically grabbed the king and they threw him out of the temple. Well, by the law of Moses and according to Hebrew tradition, the king was now barred from even entering the city of Jerusalem even from approaching the temple grounds until, or unless, 
his zarat disappeared, indicating that his gross impurity had been divinely forgiven and cleansed. The king had to vacate his own palace. He had to live in a regular house outside the city walls. He couldn't personally attend to matters of state. He couldn't hold staff meetings with his royal court. Thus his son, Yotam, was anointed like a co-king. And he acted as the visible presence of Judah's monarchy. King Uzziah wore his Surat until his death. Now, he didn't die from Surat because Surat's not a deadly disease. Whereupon his son Jotham, Yotam, became the sole king of Judah. However, up in the north, King Jeroboam II was reigning at the same time that Uzziah was on the throne in Judah. But he suddenly died, and his son, Zechariah, Zechariah, took his place. This is a different Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was a chip off the old block. God declared him to be a wicked king for continuing to in this golden calf worship. And in a matter of but six months, Zechariah was murdered by a fellow named Shalom. And it is here that in our previous lesson, we turned to one of the great biblical prophets, Hosea, and read Hosea chapters 4 and 5, which spoke primarily of this darkening spiritual condition of the northern kingdom and her kings. Now, I mentioned that it would now be necessary to incorporate the books of certain of the prophets to help us round out what we need to know about this era. But that doing so also gives us the greater benefit of helping us to set the context of the writings of these prophets. And why is that so beneficial? Because these are the writings that form what we call the end times prophecies. And it ought to be quite important for us all to want to understand what's ahead of us as opposed to accepting as truth quite a significant volume of fanciful and flatly inaccurate predictions from Christian novelists and prophecy teachers who regularly take the books of the prophets out of context in order to arrive at their dramatic conclusions. Briefly, Hosea 4 and 5 made it clear that exile was now unavoidable. The judgment against Israel had already been pronounced in heaven and soon it would take place physically on earth. And one of the reasons for this end of patience on God's part was that many of his Levite priests in the north had become willing officiators of the golden calf cult. Remember that the golden calf wasn't seen as some pagan god, but rather as an image of Jehovah. So here were Levite priests who supposedly were knowledgeable, were wise teachers of the Torah, finding it acceptable to worship a graven image and doing all manner 
of other abominable practices in God's name, and so leading the common people into that same sin as well. But on the political side, the kings of Israel had made alliances with pagan nations. Nations that the Torah said they were to have nothing to do with. In addition, in order to have harmony with those allies, Israel also embraced the worshipful respect of their gods. The Lord calls all of these activities betrayal. Let's reread part of 2 Kings 15. We're going to read verses 11 through 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, this starts on page 418. 418. Starting at verse 11. Other activities of Zechariah are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. The word of Adonai which had spoken, uh, had, he had spoken to Yehu was, Your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. And that is exactly what happened. Shalom, the son of Yavesh, began his reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. He ruled in Shimron, Samaria, for only a month. Menachem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah. He came to Shamron and he struck Shalom, the son of Yavesh, in Shomron and killed him. Then he took his place as king. Other activities of Shalom and the conspiracy he formed are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. From Tirzah, Menachem attacked Tisach, all the people in it and its territory, because they had not opened their gates to him. So he sacked the city and he ripped apart all of its pregnant women. It was in the 39th year of Azariah king of Judah that Menachem the son of Gadi began his reign over Israel and he ruled for 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. Throughout his life he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nevat who made Israel sin. So as of now Shalom of Jabesh, Yavesh, is the king of Israel. Now we don't know anything definitive about this man. And the only hint of where he was from or which tribe he belonged to is in the reference to Yavesh, Jabesh. Yavesh is a clan name. And the use of, of the name is in his identification is being tied to a place. It says he was Shalom of Yavesh. Yavesh is a condensed Bible name for the city of Jabesh Gilead, which is located in the Transjordan. Well, Gilead is the hereditary tribal territory of Gad. So while it's not certain, it's reasonable to speculate that Shalom was probably of the tribe of Gad, who at this time was indeed a member of the Northern Alliance of Hebrew tribes and made up one of what we typically think of as the ten northern tribes. Well, verse 12 records the fulfillment of a prophecy made many years earlier regarding the Israelite king Jehu and the dynasty that he had hoped to form. 2 Kings 10.30 says this, Adonai said to Jehu, Because you did well in accomplishing what is right from my perspective and have done to the house of Ahab everything that was in my heart, your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. 
King Zechariah of Israel was that fourth and last generation. He was murdered by a man, Shalom, from the tribe of Gad, so that ended Jehu's dynasty. It's amazing to me how God keeps His promises. Even though it may seem from an earthly standpoint almost unjust for the others who are adversely affected by the keeping of that promise. This succession of wicked kings stemming from Jehu, Yehoahaz, Yoash, Yeroam, and Zechariah were all wicked men. They all led the people of Israel closer to exile. They even directly affronted Jehovah by their insistence on worshiping that graven image, that golden calf. But God did not change His mind. Because His promise to Jehu that if He rid the land of Baal worship, which He did, He would be a legitimate king of Israel in God's eyes All this was written in stone. What a hope that is for us, both as individuals and as members of the body of Christ. Because His promise to us is that if we place and maintain our trust in Him, we'll have an eternal position in His kingdom. And He won't retreat from that promise. No matter what we might fear, how many life failures we might commit, or how badly things might go for us. Now, Shalom was obviously a tool of judgment in God's hands, whose only purpose was to end Jehu's four-generation dynasty, as after murdering Zechariah, he himself was murdered in only a month by a member of another tribe of Gad, uh, another member of the tribe of Gad, Menachem. The reality is that after Zechariah, almost all of the following kings of Israel were not anointed by God to be kings. Rather, they merely seized power through violence and and through homicide. And by no coincidence, since they attained power by the sword, they ruled in a brutal fashion. And most of them died brutally. Now, Menachem apparently had control over the city of Tirzah, which at one time was the capital of the northern kingdom. That was until Omri moved the capital up to Samaria. And so it was from there that he launched his attack on Samaria and he killed Shalom. But verse 16 also tells us about what a monstrously violent man Menachem was and that he also attacked a city called Tifsach and there literally ripped open the wombs of pregnant women just because they didn't immediately surrender to his authority when he arrived with his army. The cruelty was that a pregnant woman would live just long enough to see her unborn child die before she then bled to death. The Torah gives no quarter for this kind of atrocity. Even though Tifsach was a Syrian city, 
And the people Menachem killed and the unborn babies and their mothers that he murdered weren't Hebrews. Menachem proved to be somewhat of an exception to the rule because he reigned for ten years and then died a natural death rather than being assassinated. Now verse 17 puts Menachem's reign in sync with the reign of the then current king of Israel, uh, king of Judah, uh, Uzziah, who was in his 39th year of ruling. But it also explains that Menachem was just like all the other previous kings of Israel, beginning with that very first one, Jeroboam, after the split of Solomon's kingdom into two, who willingly and enthusiastically supported the golden calf cult. And it's not just that these calf worshippers, these calf worshipping kings, were themselves being unfaithful. It's that because they were leaders, they were leading their people to be unfaithful. And this is why leaders are held to a higher level of accountability before the Lord than others who aren't in leadership. And it is here that we reach a pivotal moment in Israel's history and therefore in redemption history. And it's ushered in with just a few words that on the surface seem so innocuous. Verse 19. There it says, Pool, the king of Asher, invaded the land. The moment of reckoning has arrived. The end of the northern kingdom is here. Let's read a few more verses together. Start with uh, 1519 and we'll go on to the end. Pool, the king of Asher, invaded the land. Menachem gave Pool 33 tons of silver so that he would confirm Menachem's hold on the kingdom. He did this by taxing the wealthy men in Israel. From each he required one and a quarter pounds of silver to give to the king of Asher. Then the king of Asher turned around and he left the land. Other activities of Menachem and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Menachem slept with his ancestors and Pechiah, his son, took his place as king. It was in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Pekhiah, the son of Menachem, began his reign over Israel in Shomron, and he ruled for two years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Devat, who made Israel sin. Pechach, the son of Remaliau, one of his commanders, conspired against him. And with Argov, Arye, and 50 men from Gilead, he assassinated him in the palace stronghold in Shamron, Samaria. And after killing him, he took his place as king. Other activities of Pekahia and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Pecha, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel in Shomron. His reign lasted for 20 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. During the time of Pecha, king of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Asher, came and conquered Ion, Avet Beit Macha, Yanaoch, Kadesh Hatzor, Gilead and the Galil, all the land of Naphtali, and took them captive to Asher. 
Hoshea, the son of Elah, conspired against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and he struck him. He killed him, and he took his place as king in the 20th year of Yotam, the son of Uzziah. Other activities of Pekah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, that uh, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 25 years old when his reign began, and he ruled for 16 years in Jerusalem. His... Um, his mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Sadok. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and offered up <coughs> excuse me, on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Adonai. And other activities of Yotam and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. It was during this period that Adonai began sending against Judah Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pechach, the son of Ramalia. Jotham slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor. Then Ahaz took his place, took his son, took his place as king. <coughs> Asher is the Hebrew word for Assyria. And here we find that after numerous failed attempts by Assyria to conquer Israel, but they were thwarted in a number of ways, including Syria battling Assyria, which had the effect of curtailing both Syria's and Assyria's desire to acquire Israel for themselves, well, Assyria finally succeeded. And in order to try and save his monarchy, King Menachem offered Pool 33 tons of silver so that even though the northern kingdom would now become a vassal state under Assyria's control, at least Menachem could retain his title of king and rule over his people as Assyria's stooge. And how did he come up with so much money to, to buy off a foreign government so that he could retain his own personal power? He taxed the more well-to-do Israelites. No use taxing the poor people. Sounds familiar. <laughs> it does sound familiar. He took their money so that he could stay in office. It's an old plan. The offer worked. Poole had accomplished what he wanted to for the time being. He now controlled Israel and he tapped into their economy to fund his empire-building aspirations. But it wouldn't remain that way for very long. Now, as a bit of a study help, we're going to see the king of Assyria is going to be alternately called Pool and Tiglath-Pileser. Pool is a formal name, while Tiglath-Pileser is a royal title like king or pharaoh. So we could say Pool was the current Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria at that time. Now I told you earlier and in the previous lesson 
that if we want to get more information on Israel at this time, we need to turn to the books of the prophets. And by doing so, we get the added benefit of better understanding the context of those prophetic books. Here is a case in point. So, I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Now, if that has a familiar ring, it ought to. And you're going to see why in just a few minutes. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. It's a short trip. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, just turn to page 445. 445. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to read it all. During the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pekach, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, advanced on Jerusalem to attack it, but they were unable to conquer it. It was told to the house of David that Aram and Ephraim had become allies. Akaz's heart began to tremble, as did the hearts of his people like forest trees shaken by the wind. And then Adonai said to Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shar Yashuv, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the road to Launderer's Field, and say to him, Take care to stay calm and unafraid. Don't be demoralized by these two smoldering stumps of firewood. And by the blazing anger of Retzin and Aram, or the son of Ramalia, or because Aram and Ephraim and the son of Ramalia have been plotting against you, thinking, we'll invade Judah, tear it apart, divide it among ourselves, and we'll appoint the son of Tavel as king there. Because this is what Adonai Elohim says. It won't occur. It won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damasek, Damascus. And the head of Damascus, Retzin. In 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. And they will cease to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Without firm faith, you will not be firmly established. Adonai spoke to Ahaz again and he said, Ask Adonai your God to give you a sign. Ask it anywhere, from the depths of Sheol to the heights above. But Ahaz answered, I won't ask. I won't test Adonai. Then the prophet said, Listen here, house of David. Is trying people's patience such a small thing for you that you must try the patience of my God as well? Therefore Adonai himself will give you you people a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, he will have to eat curdled milk and wild honey. Yes, before the child knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be left abandoned. 
Adonai will bring the king of Asher, Assyria, upon you. Your people and your father's house. These will be days worse than any you've known since Ephraim broke loose from Judah. Yes, when that day comes, Adonai will whistle for the fly in the farthest streams of the Nile in Egypt and for the bee in the land of Asher. They will come and settle all of them in the steep wadis and in holes in the rocks and on all thorn bushes and brambles. When that day comes, Adonai will shave with a razor hired beyond the Euphrates River, that is with the king of Asher, the head and the hair between the legs and get rid of the beard as well. When that day comes, a man will raise a young cow and two sheep. Will they produce an abundance? No. He will have to eat curdled milk. Indeed, everyone left in the land will eat curdled milk and wild honey. When that day comes, wherever there were once a thousand grapevines worth a thousand pieces of silver, there will only be briars and thistles. One will go there to hunt with bow and arrow because all the land will be briars and thorns. You won't visit hills once worked with a hoe for fear of the briars and the thorns. It'll be good only for pasturing cattle and then being trampled down by sheep. Just as in King's... um, at rather in 2 Kings 15. Here in Isaiah, we're bombarded with lots of names. So let's sort them out. The person that the Lord told Isaiah to go and confront was named Ahaz. He was the king of Judah. He was Uzziah's grandson. That guy that got Surat, Ahaz was his grandson. And Ahaz had taken over the throne from his father, Jotham, or Yotam. And as we just read in 2 Kings 15, Menachem had submitted to Pul, king of Assyria, Asher. And Assyria now controlled Israel. But more than that, willingly or unwillingly, Israel, the northern kingdom, was now an ally of Assyria. This made them a dual threat to Judah and King Ahaz of Judah knew he was in big trouble and there was no feasible way that he or Judah could survive this coming onslaught. Thus, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord seeks to assure Judah that they would survive. Not because they remain righteous in God's eyes, because he that's not how he views Judah. But rather, it's not yet Judah's time for exile. It's Israel's time for exile. Thus, in the opening words of Isaiah 7, while Syria, who is now also a vassal state that belongs to Assyria, is thus an ally of Ephraim. And remember, Ephraim is at this time an alternate name for Israel. They are together cooperating and threatening 
to invade Judah. They are boasting that they're going to tear Judah apart. They're going to divide it among themselves. They're going to appoint a new king over Judah. Certainly not a Judahite. And while it doesn't say so here, the point of removing King Ahaz rather than offering him that he could stay in power if he submits as a vassal is that Ahaz is a member of the house of David. God's promised royal line of kings. And naturally they and Satan will do anything to thwart God's promised plan of a continual line of kings of Judah coming from David. But in Isaiah 7-7, Jehovah says, without equivocation, it won't occur. It's not going to happen. Despite the overwhelming strength of Syria, Aram, and Israel, backed by the Assyrian Empire, they're not going to be able to overcome Judah. However, what will happen, says in verse 8, is that in 65 more years, Israel, here called Ephraim, they will be broken and they will cease to be a people in God's eyes. What it more correctly says in Hebrew is that Ephraim will be a chathat. Chathat, that's hard to say. Means they're going to be shattered. They won't be a cohesive people anymore. The mental image that is intended is of a bowl being dropped and it shatters. The bowl parts become so scattered from one another that the pieces aren't useful anymore to form a bowl. And this is precisely what was going to happen to the northern kingdom. Assyria would disassemble Israel tribe by tribe, clan by clan, and then send them into groups to far-flung places throughout the vast Assyrian Empire. Thus they would no longer be a cohesive or identifiable people. But then the tone of chapter thir- uh, uh, the, the tone of Isaiah chapter uh, 7 shifts in verse 13. And the Lord addresses the house of David. And here we have one of the most exciting prophecies about a future mysterious member of the house of David. And it begins in verse 14. Therefore Adonai himself will give you people a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. God is with us. The Hebrew word that our complete Jewish Bible translates as young woman is Alma. It means young woman in the sense of a young unmarried woman. It was a presumption in Hebrew society that this Alma would not become pregnant since to do so as an unmarried girl 
would bring the greatest shame upon her, her father, and her father's household. And such promiscuous girls were often stoned to death in order to restore honor to the family. This is the reason that in English we substitute the term virgin here. And in practical terms, virgin is a good translation. When will this boy child of the house of David be, be born from a girl who's never known a man? It'll be some time, it is predicted, after Judah has been exiled. And this is taken from verse 16. Yes, before the child knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be left abandoned. To put a finer point on it, the prophecy is that before this special child, who we now know to be the Messiah, reaches the age of accountability, when he can choose good from evil, 13 years old, the land that these two kings covet, Judah. And these two kings are Ritzin, the king of Syria, and the son of Ramaliah, who is Pekah, the king of Israel. They will indeed become abandoned by the Judahites. This is of course speaking of the Babylonian exile of Judah, and then later still, the Roman occupation of the Holy Land. So for a person hearing Isaiah tell his divine oracle, there isn't a great deal of information here. Just a tantalizing tidbit of knowledge that at some point, the tribe of Judah is going to no longer possess their land, and sometime after that, this special child of the house of David is going to be born to a virgin. So, no one in modern times ought to be very hard on any Israelite of that day or even the next few centuries for not understanding that this cryptic passage was a prediction for a future deliverer of the Hebrews who we now know was Yeshua of Nazareth. The remainder of Isaiah reverts now to speaking what's going to happen to Ephraim who will be taken beyond the Euphrates River. The men, it says, will have their beards shaved. While likely literal to some degree, it's mostly symbolic. Because verse 20 tells us that the razor that does the shaving is the king of Asher. See, a beard was a necessary part of a man's Hebrew identity. But in other nations, men were often going without facial hair. So the shaving of the beards from the men of Israel meant that the king of Assyria would shame them by stripping them of their Hebrew male identity. And again, that's exactly what happened. And it's why in time, those Hebrews from the northern kingdom became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel most of whom assimilated into the many Gentile cultures of the Asian continent. Well, let's get back to 2 Kings 15. Verses 21 and 22 introduce the new king of Israel, Menachem's son, Pekahiah. 
he managed to stay alive for all of two years. And when the verse tells us that King Menachem died and was buried with his forefathers, it can only mean he was buried in the territory of Gad, which was his homeland. King Pechahiah was assassinated by his trusted bodyguard, Pecha. And he, was, he replaced the former king on the throne of Israel. It says this event occurred in the 52nd year of King Uzziah of Judah. But what we find next is that the vast amount of silver that Menachem had paid several years earlier to Assyria, and no doubt Israel was paying ongoing tribute to Assyria as well, was only a delaying tactic. And now Assyria attacks a number of cities in the Transjordan and in the northern kingdom, and especially the territory of Naphtali. Why is that important? That's the Galilee region where eventually Christ would be born. Israel had dealt with attacks from Assyria in prior times, but this time it was different. Assyria wanted more than a vassal relationship where only tribute was involved. This time, they wanted to annex Israel to help form a greater Assyria. Thus, the Hebrew people from the captured cities were taken away captive. Well, not long after that, a fellow named Hosea, this is not the prophet of the same name, well, he murdered Pechah and he became the new king of what remained of Israel. Hosea was in power barely over a year when King Uzziah of Judah finally died and his son Yotam took control of Judah. Yotam generally followed his father's ways by being a fairly good king, but at the same time he allowed the private altars called Bamot to remain in use. He was credited with building a gate into the temple area called the Upper Gate. However, this was not a new gate per se. This was probably the same gate that Solomon had built more than two centuries earlier and either Jotham had it enlarged or strengthened or he merely repaired it and maybe brought it back into service. Well, as the chapter comes to a close, we learn that in those days, the Lord himself began to incite the king of Aram, king of Syria, and the king of Israel against Judah. In those days is a general term. And the point is that beginning while Yotam still ruled, these two kings of Syria and of Israel stepped up their hostilities against Judah, but it would be under Yotam's son Ahaz that an actual attack occurred. Well, Jotham finally died and was given an honorable burial in the royal tomb of the house of David because he was a legitimate descendant of King David. So as we prepare to leave now, chapter 15, King Ahaz was now on Judah's throne and Judah would find itself on constant war footing against several formidable enemies, including their own Hebrew brothers from the north. Ephraim, Israel. And we'll start chapter 16 next week.